I met uh, uh, Trenton from GoFreight. He's a Taiwanese entrepreneur running a vertical SaaS company for freight forwarders. The business was pretty flat revenue-wise. He is break-even and profitable and very proud of himself. And Mucker, we have quite an expertise on how to build vertical SaaS companies, probably the most famous VC, including the barrier on vertical SaaS. And I very much understood the problem he was trying to solve the moment he came to me. But he didn't really actually know how to pitch it. It's a gigantic industry. It's a global industry with half of it in the U.S. and a half mostly in Asia. It is an industry where the largest players are billion-dollar companies and the smallest players are one or two people. It is an industry where the long tail aggregate together is probably 80% of the industry. So the onesies, the twosies, the threesies are actually dominant players in the space. So there's a ton of fragmentation. This is Startup Island Taiwan. Everything about Taiwan and cutting-edge technology, startup unicorns, and connections to the world. Hello, and welcome back to Startup Island Taiwan. I'm your host, Jeremy Olivier. I'm very excited to have on the show this week William Xu, co-founder and partner of Mucker Capital, a Los Angeles-based venture capital firm focused on providing seed and Series A capital and support for startups outside of Silicon Valley. So this is a topic I think is really relevant to Startup Island Taiwan listeners, as well as Taiwan's burgeoning startup culture and ecosystem. As we all know, creating international linkages and finding the right kind of funding and guidance can sometimes be quite difficult for many of those startups here just starting out. So William is a well-known fixture of LA's VC and startup scenes. I've heard tell he's the number one VC guy in the city, a graduate of Stanford's industrial engineering department and an MBA holder from the Wharton School of Management. William kicked off his entrepreneurial career in the early 2000s by founding BuildPoint, a SaaS provider of bid management and marketplace services to the commercial construction industry. Prior to establishing Mucker, William served as the senior vice president and chief product officer of AT&T Interactive, where within three years of outstanding leadership, he doubled the company's revenue to more than 1 billion US. He's also led product teams at eBay, Green Dot, and SpotRunner. William, it's excellent to have you with us today. No, I'm happy to be here. And I just want to congratulate you for being the very first white person that pronounced my last name correctly. I have so much William Sue's that I kind of just don't mind anymore. But she is a very hard word to pronounce for Caucasians. Yeah, for sure. I don't think there's any equivalent in the English language for that sh sound. Yes, the alçon aigu, maybe a French person might be able to say it better. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting point. So William, you know, just to kick off, there's a lot in the name and Mucker is certainly an interesting one. So where did this name and idea come from and how does it inform the firm's approach to investing in accelerating startups? First, I want to give credit to the name to my partner, Eric, who's not here today. Eric is quite a history buff around the history of technology, and he also loves Thomas Edison. So that's where the name actually comes from. What is Mucker? Mucker is a short for the fraternity of men that work for Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison is uh, famously for being a slave driver. He works his people really, really hard. But he also very much believes in that innovation is not about inspiration, but about perspiration. Right? Famously, right, Nikola Tesla, his contemporary, will spend his time in the basement by himself inventing things and come out of from that dungeon once every three months. And Thomas Edison had hundreds of young, smart college grads working for him, trying to invent things. And invention for him wasn't about I have an idea. It's more like I have a problem. How do we try 10,000 solutions and find the one that works? 
he believes that brute force iteration is how you find the right solution rather than inspiration or critical thinking. Now, certainly critical thinking is a good thing. However, we very much believe that solutioning is really about trying to find the right problem, the right solution through iteration. It's the lean startup methodology. So ultimately, we believe that Thomas Edison is really the first kind of progenitor of the startup ethos around lean startup, right? Taking a problem and finding solutions and trying out as many solutions as there is until you get it correctly. So it really gives new meaning to the term mucking around. Oh, yeah. That term actually comes from uh, the fact that uh, Thomas Edison was working on a new formulation for bricks. So instead of thinking about the chemical composition, and all he did was he had his, you know, people go out in the mud and make different formulations. So all these young guys were knee deep in mud, kind of cooking up different mixtures of kind of cement, if you will. And the press saw these guys mucking around in the mud and called them Edison's muckers. And that's how they named it. Ah, okay. How does this name and concept inform your firm's approach to investing in and accelerating startups? We very much believe that just like Thomas Edison, perspiration is more important than inspiration. That means persistence, hard work, passion towards problem solving, understanding the market, listening to the customer, and constantly changing your answer. Come up with your straw man and know that it's always wrong and take it to market, get data back, and then iterate. Whether that is the feature, the color of a button, your pricing, your customer base, your pricing scheme, all those things will change from now till 10 years from now. So might as well get started early and do it right away. Um, we believe that it doesn't make sense to spend a lot of money building up a business until you've done those iteration in the early stage of the company's kind of life cycle. And then really find the right answer before you spend a ton of money growing your business and hiring a lot of people and spending a lot of money. So I see this term on Mucker's website, blue collar VC. Can you explain this concept? As somebody that's a bit of an outsider looking in, that term seems almost like an oxymoron to me. It is an oxymoron. There's multiple meanings to that. The first meaning is really around how we think an entrepreneur should be. And that is, they should be lean. They should be capital efficient. They should try as hard as they can to get to profitability. And it is not growth at all costs. And the reason that we say that is because Mucker itself was a hard-earned startup, if you will. When Eric and I first started the firm 12 years ago, our first fund was about a million dollars. About a quarter of that came from a home equity line I took on my house. We didn't pay ourselves for five years. We were able to raise a total in five years of about $13 million. Everybody didn't believe in us. Like Eric and I had an operating background, not a VC background. So people asked, what were the successful startups? Do you have any unicorns in your portfolio? And we're like, no, we're here to help entrepreneurs. We're not here to like bet on horses. What does that matter? And then secondly, they asked us like, so 99.9% of unicorns are all based in the barrier. If you're going to invest outside of the barrier, how are you ever going to build big companies? Like investors are looking at the historical data and making a projection forward. They're not trying to change the world, change the future. That's not how Eric and I think about the world. Of course, the future is unknown. Of course, the future, if projected from today, is not that exciting. But that's the whole point of being an entrepreneur. You change the future. You change the world. You change the trajectory of the business, of the industry, or the market, or even the community that you're in. So for five years, we believed while everyone else said no, we literally traveled the world to fundraise and only get $13 million. 
Of course, the last five years has been very different from the first five years. Today, the fund is about $450 million. That $13 million fund returned almost, almost, uh, say $300 million to our investors. Oh, wow. Yeah. And we've been one of the best performing VCs outside of the Bay Area for the last 10 years. So lagging indicators. Now people think we're really great and really smart. In reality, we're somewhere between, you know, two guys who raised $13 million in five years and some guy who can make a 30x fund, right? You're never as good as people think you are and you're never as bad as people think you are either. Sure pretty humble beginnings. If you don't mind me saying something kind of like a bootstrapped operation funding other bootstrapped operations. Yeah, like we tell entrepreneurs, like if Eric and I can bootstrap a venture fund, which technically has no revenue, right? That's like VCs don't have revenue, right? We don't sell a product. Then asking you who's selling a product or service to a customer to bootstrap and to be lean and to really kind of persist and not need the $150,000 annual salary to survive. Yeah, that's probably not asking for too much. If I could do it, then so can you. So venture capital is not just about financing, and Mucker has a pretty comprehensive VC approach. Can you talk a little bit more about the various tactics it uses to get non-Silicon Valley-based startups past those initial stages and growing pains? The Valley, where I actually grew up, and, and where all three partners actually spent all of our professional careers before investing here in LA, is a really unique community. I will think of it almost like a different country than the rest of the U.S. in a lot of ways. It has its own language. I don't mean like English, but the way people talk, the words that they use. There's a set of behavior that's considered the norm. And these VCs are really benchmarking against bill curve that's built in the Bay Area, right? So if they've seen 30, 50, 100 companies in the Bay Area, and you come from LA or New Orleans or Seattle or even Taiwan, the first kind of thing they're going to do is benchmark you against those companies. And for our company to be successful, they need to come out on top. What does that mean? That means that VCs really only invest in top 10%, 5%, even 3% of the companies that they see. So even Bay Area companies has a very low funding rate. If you come from outside of the Bay Area, the only way you're going to win is A, be able to talk the same language as C, behave in the same way. And then really lastly, know your numbers and know that your business performance is not just the top 10%, but the top 1% of all the startups they're seeing. What Eric, Omar, and I are able to do is because we've seen so many startups in the Bay Area and have worked in the Bay Area before, we know what a successful entrepreneur looks like, talk like. We know what a successful startup looks like, organized like has what kind of org chart and has what kind of CAC payback period or growth rate or gross margins, right? Like these data and these numbers that these VCs are crunching. So we spent all our time around how to help our entrepreneur kind of behave and think like a top area entrepreneur, and then also build a company that has the metrics that is enviable to even barrier our companies. So to be you know even more specific, it's around conversationally getting them to start talking like a barrier entrepreneur, build a process and a system and an organization within their startup that iterate like a barrier company, right? Like the way that they talk about their sprint process, about their CICD process, about their product development lifecycle, about how they do customer interviews, right? Like these best practices around how to build a startup or how to even just build a tech company is how we teach our entrepreneurs. And then the last thing we do is build them the financial discipline to really understand how to measure success in a weekly and monthly basis so that they can benchmark themselves against the rest of the industry. You know, without this lens, 
oftentimes it's hard to entrepreneurs to kind of break through the noise, even if their companies are really amazing. Like, you know, VCs pass on a deal within the first 15 minutes of talking to someone. So if you don't match exactly their pattern matching, um, you don't get a chance to prove them wrong. And we try to help them through that first 15 minutes and then down all the way through the due diligence process. So this is a bit like an all-around training program for these non-SC companies. Thanks for that comprehensive background on Mucker. I want to move the conversation on to Taiwan and its startup scene. You know, if we look at the term startup in kind of like the modern day post 2000 since Taiwan's startup scene is still kind of in its infancy, or at least maybe you could say like toddler stage. And there are roadblocks, both official and in terms of the availability of capital here. And many also say that Taiwan's startup scene just, it's just not sufficiently internationally connected and that the traditionally risk averse nature of Taiwan's business environment isn't conducive to disruption and innovation in the same way that you see in Silicon Valley or even a place like LA. So what has Mucker's experience been with investing in Taiwanese startups? And do you see any potential for Taiwan's startup ecosystem to become on par with other startup hubs in Asia or in the U.S.? I'll say something pretty controversial. Taiwan, as we see it today, is already better than what L.A. was in 2011 when Mucker first started. Great example, Mucker itself has more unicorns in our portfolio than all of L.A. for 25 years before we got here. It is, again, it's not like we're so amazing. Other VCs in LA are also doing amazingly well. But you can't use the past to predict the future. And you have to have an entrepreneurial mindset. And that mindset is that you can bend the curving and you can do it one week at a time, one month at a time, one year at a time, and then one company at a time. And when we first started LA, like I just said, right, it took us five years to fundraise because every LP in the world thought like, LA, yuck, like, I don't want to invest in LA, right? Like, I want to invest in Palo Alto, I want to invest in South San Francisco, like, literally, like, that kind of, like, geographic focus. I do not want to invest in LA. And this is to say that, like, I think a VC like Mucker that has seen how much an ecosystem could change in 10 years, understand the travails of building a startup in Taiwan better than a VC that's, you know, investing in the Bay Area for the last 25 years, because all they've seen is the golden ages. And this is why we're so focused on be lean, focused on iteration, focused on the customer and focused on monetization. Like in a capital poor environment such as LA 10 years ago, this is what you have to do to build successful companies. And we've done that with the portfolio many, many times. And today I very much believe, you know, Taiwan is no harder than it was LA 10 years ago. The distance between LA and Taiwan and LA and like Santa Clara or Palo Alto or San Francisco or the Bay Area, LA is much more like Taiwan than LA is to San Francisco especially 10 years ago. But even now, the distance between LA and Taiwan is much, much less than LA and San Francisco. And if LA can do it, so can Taiwan. And the goal here is not look at the macro numbers. The goal is to look at one opportunity at a time, one company at a time, and build it one step and one kind of stone at a time. Through your experience with working with Taiwanese startups, what are some of the strengths that you see here that maybe we're lacking in LA. Yeah, you know, um, 10 years ago, LA engineering salary was about half of the Bay Area. And that means that uh, LA companies can be a lot leaner. Like 500K in initial investment can get you two or three engineers and you can go and build a product in three to six months. 
500K might only get you one engineer in the Bay Area because you got other expenses. And one engineer will might take you 10 years to build something that's really good. And the same dynamic still exists between Taiwan and the rest of the US. The salaries in LA have exploded as well. And ironically, I have all my companies try to source engineering in Taiwan, regardless whether the founder is Taiwanese or not, because the lifeblood of a tech startup is lines of code, whether that is SaaS company or e-commerce company or a securities company. And Taiwan has that talent. All you need is great people and that can write code. And writing code is no longer the exclusive domain of Stanford and Berkeley engineering grads, right? Maybe 15, 20 years ago, if you want to build a website, yeah, maybe only Stanford kids have the right education and being exposure to the coolest like languages and systems to be able to do it. That's not the case anymore, right? With open source, um, anyone can learn and build a website or, or build whatever they need to build. So I think the baseline, like the foundations, the oxygen that's needed in Taiwan to build a startup ecosystem where it exists and it's actually better than it is anywhere in the US, right? So then the thing that we need to work on is the entrepreneurs and the problem they're trying to solve. And that can be solved with the right partner whether and right advisor, whether that's a VC or somebody that the entrepreneur knows to really guide them to the right well, I guess, or the right lake or ocean to find the right outcome. I find it really interesting that you have such enthusiastic faith in Taiwan's, you know, ability to bring its startup ecosystem up to the the international level that you see some of these other startup hubs around the world on. It does contrast with some uh, conversations that I've had with other VC people, other people in the startup scene here, Taiwanese Americans that have come over here and tried to kind of change things around and kind of run into some of these traditional barriers. I'd mentioned the tendency toward avoiding risk as one aspect of Taiwanese business culture. And I understand that that's not across the board, but this kind of fear of failure does seem to be somewhat prevalent in my observation. So from what I've read, BuildPoint was not the success you'd been anticipating when you first started it. So maybe we could move over to that and talk about, you know, what lessons do you think Taiwanese startups can learn from your experience with building a company that ultimately did not succeed? You know, it's interesting. My father, obviously, is Taiwanese, and he came from the generation that is entrepreneurial, that created the contract manufacturing boom in Taiwan. And it is from him I learned my entrepreneurial spirit and risk-taking. So from my perspective, because I didn't grow up in the current Taiwan, I grew up in the Taiwan of 30, 40 years ago, where Taiwan needed to have that industrial revolution to survive, right? moving from an agricultural-focused country to an industrial one. My view of Taiwan is actually very different. And the competitive advantage, my naivete, that I do believe there is going to be a subset of people who are entrepreneurial, who are risk takers, who are willing to make a difference. And all you really need is a select few right? It's like Steve Jobs said, it's really the 0.1% that changes the world. And you don't need 500 entrepreneurs or 50,000 entrepreneurs. I only need to find one. And that one can make five more and that five more can make 25. So I think success begets kind of role models and role models begets kind of more copycats in a good way. And after a few generations, that changes. So back to my side of the background, 
So my dad was an entrepreneur. Um, he started a company in Taiwan. And because I guess it's 40 years later, the same issue, my dad didn't really want me to, you know, get drafted into the army. And when the communists come, oh my God, little, you know, 15 year old Will is off to, you know, like the communists. And to be honest, uh, I was actually a pretty terrible student in Taiwan. Like one quarter, I'll do, you know, really great. Like, 90% plus, and then another quarter, I'll be like in the back of a class. Like I just didn't have that kind of focus to be a consistent kind of student. He thought that like I wouldn't survive in the, the education system here in Taiwan. Right? Like you test into middle school and you test into high school and you test into college and you fuck up somewhere along the way, there goes your career. So he decided to move us to, uh, to the U.S. And maybe this is a little bit stereotypical too, but all of a sudden in the U.S., I was like, oh, like I'm doing like fifth grade math while everyone else doing like second grade math. Maybe I'm not so stupid. And that's just a little bit of that self-confidence really kind of helped me kind of invest my own time to become a better student. And a few years later, I, I was a decently good student, I guess, because I did eventually get into Stanford. And luckily for me, uh, this was in the, I got in in 1994, in the middle of the beginning, I guess, of the internet revolution, right? I remember the computers getting installed with, you know, internet explorers. Like every new student all of a sudden gets an email address. I'm like, what? Like, what is an email address, right? And Jerry Yang was already the talk of the school even before it was like, you know, more in the broader zeitgeist. So like, A, my dad was an entrepreneur. B, being an entrepreneur is was already kind of like the cool things to do at Stanford, not anywhere else in the U.S., but certainly at Stanford. Um, it really helped me kind of understand that like this is a path, a career path. Like if you want to be a lawyer, great. If you want to be a doctor, great. If you want to be an entrepreneur, great too. Right? No one was going to stop me and, and I'll have the, the emotional support of my parents. Um, so within a year after graduating from Stanford, I started my first uh, internet company, Billpoint, as you mentioned, and I raised like $50 million. I remember like it took me five years to raise 13, right? I raised $50 million in 12 months as a 22-year-old for my first business. And back then, nobody knows whether you are a good or bad entrepreneur because you need a lot of money just to get a website up. You need to buy your own hardware, do your own co-location, buy this expensive software that wasn't open source, right? Like, you probably need about $4 million just to print Hello World on a browser. So all the VCs, when they saw me, was like, oh, you're a Taiwanese engineer from Stanford? You're like Jerry Yang. I ain't going to make a lot of money investing in you. They were very wrong. I definitely lost a lot of money for them. So sorry, guys. Jerry Yang, who is the founder of Yahoo, the first Taiwanese-American uh, billionaire who's on the trustee of Stanford, he's really my idol and really a lot of idols of Asian-Americans in general in the tech industry because he really broke through the, they call it the bamboo ceiling, the glass ceiling around how Asian-Americans can be successful here in the U.S. But, you know, it was a great learning experience, like only in the Valley, and I don't even mean the U.S. I mean, only in the Valley would somebody give you $50 million to learn on their money. So this failure is just another word for learning. And certainly the Valley is very different than the rest of the U.S. and the rest of the world, that it values failure and learning as much as it values success. But you can't just have failure. You have to have a story around failure. You have to have concrete learnings from those failures. Like people want to talk to you about how you fail, why you fail, and how you're going to do differently, right? It's not just like, oh, failure is good. It's more like, what did you learn from your failures? Can you articulate that into a sellable story? Can you articulate that into something concrete? And I encourage my entrepreneurs to do that on every single micro failure that they have along the way. 
they tried out a new marketing campaign and acquired no users. Why? How come? What did the data say? Did you tweak it? What did that data do? Right? What did you learn from that experience? Not just that it failed, it didn't work, and we shouldn't do it again, but more like, what did we learn? Like, oh, we shouldn't use color blue in our ads. We should use red. Red got us 30% conversion. Blue got us 0%. I'm not kidding. That is one of the results that we got. Like life is super unexpected and it's all about what you learn and taking that learning into the next step process. The big success and the big failures are great for podcasts, but it's really the little micro failures that helps you learn to get your micro success and then stacking up micro success into medium success into big success. That's how you build a business. Great. Thanks for that background. That was fantastic. So you were talking earlier about some of the obstacles, you know, new startups with maybe good ideas face uh, in Silicon Valley, including, you know, the kind of language that people use there. And, you know, I was looking at this tweet the other day that said, you know, only 1% of startup, you know, successfully attain funding because most of them fail to tell a compelling story and their pitches to VC firms. So has that been part of your experience too? And especially an application to Taiwanese startups? Um, absolutely. This is not just a Taiwanese problem. It is a St. Louis problem. It is a New Orleans problem, sometimes even a Chicago problem. Like the entrepreneurs don't know how to tell a compelling story around the problem they're solving and how big and how immediately painful that it is and drawing the right analogies for VCs to understand that they can be successful. I think analogies are super important. VCs, again, make quick decisions on whether they're going to invest or not invest. The yes takes maybe one month. The no takes like five minutes into a call, into a Zoom. You can see a VC kind of just like lays out, right? They're just like, I'm not interested. I'm just going to ask some questions and let's get off the phone or get off Zoom as fast as I can. And the ability to make that compelling story, the compelling case that you can be successful and that there is a historical example of companies doing the same thing and they're very, very successful, right? Is super key in how to pitch a company to a VC, right? Great example is a lot of times I tell entrepreneurs, talk about your incumbent companies you're competing against. Tell them, tell people how big they are. I'm competing with five companies that each was $4 billion on NASDAQ and none of them is SaaS. They're all client service software built on AS400 from IBM from 40 years ago. That's a great story. It's like, oh, wow, these are $4 billion each and there's four of them and their software platform is all from the 1970s. Man, it is time for some disruption, right? Like you got to understand what VCs are thinking in the back of their head. They're thinking about how big the market is, how fast is your short is the sales cycle? So the more pain for the customer, the faster the short cycle. And then can you build and scale an organization to really take advantage of that opportunity and that problem you're trying to solve? And then so the other side is important. You have to speak the right language. You have to have the right metrics. You need to design your deck in a certain way. Like even just visually, it's really important for VCs to feel like you understand how to build an amazing deck because that's all about marketing. It's all about sales. It's all about partnerships, right? Like being able to communicate on a portrait basis is not just a skill around pitching on VC, but also for VCs to understand, you know, the language of business and how to talk business with other potential partners in the space. Can you just give me a case, you know, from your own experience where a startup coming to you for funding from outside of Silicon Valley and they already got this, right? They had that storytelling aspect down pat. Down pat or be before I got involved? Yeah, before you got involved. You know, um, it's 
pretty rare for an entrepreneur to, from outside of the Bay Area to know this type of stuff. I actually haven't seen a case. It's been 11, 12 years, and obviously we've been a very successful firm. But entrepreneur from outside of the Bay Area, it's not that rare for me to find entrepreneurs that know how to build a great company, that know how to build a great product, that has you know very specialized experience or network within a certain domain that they're experts in. But as far as being able to communicate to VCs in a way that gets VC excited, I've never seen it. They always require some sort of coaching and some sort of learning curve. And thankfully, that is probably the easiest part of building a company is to pitch for funding. Actually, the harder part is like sell your product, recruit engineers, recruit a VP of marketing, and then build a company culture and then build processes and systems so that you can scale without the company falling on top of itself. Those are truly hard things. It's like um, learning English for me was like that. Learning physics was actually much harder than learning English. Okay, great. Let's kind of switch that question around and let me ask, you know, can you give me a case of a company that came to you and you were like, man, this is a great idea, but they have no idea what they're supposed to say. And how did you kind of walk them through the process? And you don't have to name names. I can give a actually a very direct example. And I think you guys already know this company. About two and a half years ago, I met Trenton from GoFreight. He's a Taiwanese entrepreneur running a vertical SaaS company for freight forwarders. The business was pretty flat revenue-wise. He is break-even and profitable and very proud of himself. And Mucker, we have quite an expertise on how to build vertical SaaS companies, probably the most famous VC, including the Bay Area on vertical SaaS. And I very much understood the problem he was trying to solve the moment he came to me. But he didn't really actually know how to pitch it. It's a gigantic industry. It's a global industry with half of it in the US and a half mostly in Asia. It is an industry where the largest players are billion-dollar companies and the smallest players are one or two people. It is an industry where the long tail aggregate together is probably 80% of the industry. So the onesies, the twosies, the threesies are actually dominant players in the space. So there's a ton of fragmentation. Lots of companies are not even on software, mostly on pen and paper. And those who are on software are on software built in the 80s. There is no cloud-based competitor in the space. And even in the US, there isn't. Literally, GoFreight was the only one I saw and I actually kind of dug around the space before. And what Trenton lacked was the storytelling aspect of the deck wasn't what the barrier VC would expect around market sizing, market prevention, product design, competition, all the things that you need to check the boxes on, not quite there. He also obviously wasn't growing fast enough for the venture industry. Right. The venture industry really are looking for 3x in revenue growth every 12 months. And I'm sure a lot of VC, the moment they saw that revenue is kind of flat, it just passed. It didn't really work. I believe that over our hypothesis, so I dug in on why the company wasn't going as fast as he did. And a lot of it is around not having the right sales motion because he is one of the few vertical SaaS startup or SaaS startups in Taiwan. If he was actually based in the Bay Area or here in LA, he will have a lot of friends running the same sales motion and hiring the same salespeople, understanding how to go to market. And I wondered if we were able to build that knowledge into the team, we're able to get the growth up. And that turned out to be the case, that it wasn't because the product was bad or the industry didn't want the software solution. It was the gap in the middle 
that we didn't know how to build a sales motion that's repeatable, scalable, that really generated momentum on the sales side. The other side of that equation is really more around the KPIs and the finances. And give a lot of credit to Taiwanese entrepreneurs. We are hard studiers. And when it comes to numbers, we will work very hard to get the right answers. So all I really needed to do was give Trenton basically like blog posts to read and decks to read around benchmarking and the numbers that's required to become a venture fundable company. And he kind of absorbed it really well. Like he was a straight A student. And, you know, that's interesting because I'll call it venture 20 years ago wasn't so numerical, but 20 years later, it has become a very quantitative investing model. Like literally you make yes or no decision based on four or five numbers for any given category. You crunch them, you see them and you go, not interesting, interesting. And that actually gives some competitive advantage to entrepreneurs who are not as like extroverted or even fluent in English so that they could really compete on the fundamentals of their company rather than the ability to kind of tell a story. Obviously, that's important too, but now there's two fronts to cover. And that front around the numbers, the KPI, the financial outcomes, I believe almost every Taiwanese entrepreneur can be taught and those lessons are uh, easy to sell. Besides GoFreight, do you have any other examples of innovative Taiwanese startups that have really caught your attention? And what niche demand are these companies filling? Um, so we talked a little bit about staffing in Taiwan as one of Taiwan's competitive advantage. So I invested in a Taiwanese company called Woka that is trying to build an end-to-end recruiting and HR platform, mostly focused on Asian and Southeast Asian talent so that uh, companies in the U.S. can build a seamless recruiting machine as well as a hiring machine and HR machine so that they can set up essentially a subsidiary of one person up to 20 people or even 100 people anywhere in Asia. You know, I think, again, companies, especially after COVID, need to be international for various reasons, whether that is market-driven, like every company needs to think about international markets, as well as talent-driven. And I'm happy to bet on that trend all day long and really take advantage of what I see as Taiwan's competitive advantage. And this goes back to my conversations earlier around, you know, macro it does seem like it's really hard to invest in successful Taiwanese companies, right? And I agree, macro, it is hard. But I tell everyone, every unicorn is an outlier. Like, if you think about how many failed social media startups are out there in San Jose, there are probably a thousand and there was only one Facebook, right? Like every successful investment is an outlier. So it doesn't really matter what the average is. It doesn't really matter what the average outcome is in Taiwan or even in LA 10 years ago. What it matters is that you pick the right entrepreneur solving the right problem, and then you partner with them through thick and thin to make the business work. And all you need is one success to change the entire story. Like LA 10 years ago was a no man's land for startup. And now it is sometimes second, sometimes third uh, most important geography for tech in the U.S. today. It's just great to hear your, your optimistic outlook for Taiwan's startup scene. I mean, like I was saying earlier, it does contrast with some of the more negative voices that I was hearing, you know, while reporting for uh, AmCham Taiwan. You know, given this, what do you kind of see as the future for the startup scene here and for things like international linkages and further development? Um, it is true that... For a company to be successful, to be attractive to a US VC, addressable market is super important. So it's critically important for Taiwanese entrepreneurs to not build a company for Taiwan and then a year or two years later think about what can the company be for somewhere else. But they need to have a global view right away. 
and the TAM is global. Like if Trenton came to me and said, I have a freight forwarding software company and I sell to Taiwanese freight forwarders, I probably wouldn't have invested. We need to have a global view to try to solve a global problem and therefore have a global size outcome that's attractive to VCs that's globally focused. And that's probably the most important thing the Taiwanese entrepreneur needs to do is to think globally around the product and the solution and the services that they offer beyond Taiwan, right? Like Taiwan is 40 million people. That's, you know, one-tenth of the TAM of the U.S. And then you add in GDP, it's about one-tenth. So that's important to me. Um, I understand why Taiwanese VCs will have a negative view, right? Like if I have to pick 30 companies in Taiwan over a three-year period, that's probably not going to be a good outcome because that's the average. But if I can pick one a year and invest in three companies in Taiwan and make a huge difference, that's totally and 100% dual. Yeah, and it's interesting what you mentioned about, you know, having kind of a globally oriented outlook. You know, it does accord with, you know, some of the reporting and survey results from when I was at AmCham Taiwan. We had a business climate survey where generally the upper level management of, you know, Fortune 500 companies or other multinationals with operations in Taiwan would give their economic forecast or outlook for Taiwan's economy and their own business prospects. But also, you know, there was always a, a section on talent Talent and what were Taiwan talent's strengths and weaknesses. And I think this can be applied to the entrepreneur class as well. It's like there is still a little bit of a lack of an international mindset. So, I mean, wise word from William. And also just some fascinating insights on venture capital, on startups and Taiwan's you know growing potential in this area. I know you're one hell of a busy man, William, but I really appreciate you taking the time to share your thoughts and experiences with us today. No, thank you. I'm happy to be of help. You know, Taiwan is my home and it will always be. I also want to thank listeners for tuning in again this week. We hope to see you next time on Startup Island Taiwan.